his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Hey guys, Bill Spadia here. Welcome back to the Speaking Podcast. I'm joined by my friends and co-hosts, Jay Black and Jessica Gibson. Hello. So Jay, all right. Now, Jessica and Jay, we have kind of a special episode today because Jay went off and had a whole conversation yes. with an economist at Penn State. Now, Jessica, I'm just going to share this with you. I have some slight concerns that the guy could be some communist, and I'm not sure what's about to take place. So, Jay, reassure me that I'm not opening up our airwaves to some um, you know, anti-capitalist kind. I was thinking maybe we should just talk about food instead. Yeah. Then- <laughs> I, Jessica, I had the same thought. No, so I, James is a little to the right of me when it comes to economics, and here's what I mean. Bill, you know that I am a capitalist through and through. Uh, I... You, hey, hold on a second. How dare you? (laughs) I have differences of opinion of how much the government should be involved in managing capitalism, but I believe- Jay, Jay, you you proposed a death tax that you lose all your money when you die. Right, but you keep all of your money while you're alive. I call it the meritocracy tax. And guess what? I bring it up to to, uh, James Tierney in this interview. The big- I'm sure you did. And I'm guessing, wait, he loves it. So listen, my disclaimer on this is what you are about to hear does not necessarily reflect the opinions, thoughts, and philosophy of at least one of the hosts of the Speaking Podcast. I'll say that's my disclaimer. He is uh, very much a believer that capitalism is the best solution to our problems. Uh, And he thinks, uh, you know, we we spend time going after the right with some of the free market stuff overboard. But we also go after the left with the dirtbag left, which I don't agree with. uh, And they're sort of like, well, let's just do communism shrug emoji with no thought behind it at all. So it's it's down the middle. And I will say this about James. He said that his biggest problem right now as a teacher of now he's in his 30s. James, I met him when he was a college student. He opened for me on the road for a while because he did stand up. But he, you know, and you'll hear, he'll go in depth. He says that his leftist students yell at him for being way too right. And his right students yell at him for being way too left. And he said, it's hard to be in the middle nowadays because everybody's got an agenda. So I think you'll agree with that at least. Hmm. No, see, I hate the middle, Jay. I think you take a stand, one side or the other. I respect the left for saying we're going to take your money and redistribute it because at least they've taken a solid stand. You know, Bernie, for all his faults, he's on one side. Anyway, Jessica, I'm thinking that you may be right. Maybe we should talk about like hash browns and chili and the great steaks I made last night. I don't know. The, the big All right. Well, let, this, let's have at it, Jay. Let's let's let it roll, and I will let the audience decide. There's listen. Here's what we're gonna do. There will not be. Uh, we're not gonna come back after this. But if you listen to this, I want to hear from you. We've got a new way of communicating. You are both gonna love this, and this goes for Jay and Jessica as well. If you want to have a note to Jay or Jessica, you can go to the free, free, free New Jersey 101.5 app. And all you have to do is subscribe to my show, The Bill Spadia Show, and there is a chat. And now every day, because everybody complains about how long the news breaks and the commercials are, and sometimes I'm off the air for 12, 13, 14 minutes, great news. During the show now, from 6 to 10, I will be answering your chats. Producer Kristen taught me how to log in all by myself. I did it successfully today. So we're going to see how it goes. So if you have any questions, you want to weigh in. Do you like this guest? Do you think that uh, Jay should get more free reign to bring in his small C commies to uh, to talk <laughs> about the economy? Um, let me know on the chat. If you want to say anything to uh, Jessica or Jay, use the free app. So we'll leave it at that. 
and I'll give it to you, Jay, to give the intro to James Tierney. All right, guys. James Tierney is a professor at Penn State University. He uh, is one of my oldest comedy friends. I met him in my first year as a stand-up. As a uh, He booked me to come to his college. I uh, said he was interested in stand-up, and for a couple of years while he was in grad school, he came and opened for me whenever I did a college near him. And uh, we reconnected on Twitter, and he, I said, come on in. And he still thought this was speaking millennial, so he was going to talk about college students. They said, no, it's just speaking. Let's talk about economics. The only issue I ran into was limiting myself to only 45 minutes because otherwise this thing would have gone 10 hours because I just love economics and love talking it so much. And James is a great teacher of it. So I think you guys are really going to like this. All right. Excellent. All right. Uh, thank you, Bill and Jessica, and also Jay in the future. Uh, this is Jay in the past, and I'm talking to not the past, but the future, James Tierney, econ professor. Uh, can I say from which college? Should I do that, James? Sure, sure that's fine by me. At uh, Penn State University. Uh, he teaches uh, econ. What What are the courses that you teach over there? Is it like intro to econ? Is it is it Keynesian economics? What do you, What do you teach? Yeah, so I teach intro and intermediate macroeconomics. So uh, my official title is an assistant teaching professor. So they got rid of any research requirements that I have to do and is, uh, so now I just completely focus on teaching these large undergrad uh, classes of macroecon. And yes, we definitely lean Keynesian here at Penn State. Well, I so I'm going to say this about Keynesian economics. Uh We've had, I guess, approximately 80 years worth of Keynesian economics, and uh, it works. I, I, I'm sorry, it, it just works. I, I've, I know it's an imprecise system, but show me another one that allows for constant growth without the downside of, you know, a depression every 40 years. I mean, am I wrong in saying that? Well, I would say that... Uh it works assuming that it's being done correctly. And what a lot of people forget about Keynes is, you know, people, people think back in the, in the bad name, name that Keynes gets is that he's very, you know, deficit spending and deficit spending and deficit spending and not worrying about the debt. Right. And all those things are true if we're in an economic crisis or yes. if we're in some sort of economic downturn. But he was a big proponent of once we do hit you know, the a big boom that we need to cut that spending and we need to raise those taxes and we need to start saving for the rainy day. Right. Uh, and and I tell I tell my students all the time, this is where economists and politicians start to hate each other, because no, if you're if you're a politician, the last thing you want to do is raise taxes or cut spending because you're probably not going to get reelected. Right. So uh, it's, it's a, a famous thing in, in the Fed talking about how because the Federal Reserve being completely supposed to be completely autonomous from the federal government. They're the ones that end up, quote unquote, taking the punch bowl away at the party right? Um, and, and trying to take the rest. So, yes, uh, I wish that Keynesian econom uh, economics was uh, was done a little better in in good times rather than uh, seeing these massive bubbles that we've seen, you know, pre-2008, uh, pre-2001. If we would have seen higher taxes and higher interest rates before then I think would have been a little smoother, but right. it is what it is. Uh, Keynesian, uh, there's always been fiscal and monetary, and uh, fiscal has, has let us down to a large degree with Keynesian economics, but even in its imprecise form, I, I the thing that I've always, my dad was a Keynesian until he got old and watched Fox News at the end of his life. Uh, but, uh, you know, he was a, an econ major, like you. He went into banking instead of teaching. But uh, I grew up in a house where, you know, uh, the name of the Fed chair was spoken uh, at the dinner table often. And I remember being in uh, sixth grade and my dad explaining to me, like, what the Fed chair does and going, how come more people don't know about this? Uh, because it seems like he has more power in America than just about anybody else. And he's no one knows who he is. Uh, yeah, that that's true. And so was that, was that Volcker at the time? Would that have been when you were in sixth grade? Uh, I'm thinking Greenspan. I was in sixth grade in 88. 88. So okay, yeah. I think that's Greenspan. Uh, if not 88, then 89. So seventh grade Greenspan. But I was a uh, irrational exuberance guy. Um, okay. Volcker, was he after Greenspan? No, he was He was before. He was the early, early 80s. So Volcker, Volcker uh, really got inflation under control. 
uh, with for Reagan. Uh, yeah. So right, and basically, basically sat there when uh, when we had the oil crises late late seventies, early eighties. Uh, ended up pretty much just uh, what we call disinflation. So the inflation rate being up at fourteen percent and wanting to get that down to like a five or a four percent, a more manageable rate. Right. So even though we were in kind of a recessionary period and an unstable period, raising interest rates and pulling back on economic activity. So. I yeah. guess I was, I was making you a little older than what you are. Oh, I appreciate, uh, you know, you thinking I was an experienced guy. Uh, was yeah. was Volcker was there for stagflation in the late 70s, right? That's that's what I remember it being Correct. called. Correct, yeah. So stagflation was what happened at the, at the beginning. So that's the start where high unemployment rates and high uh, inflation rates. That's really bad, right? So yeah. some, some recessions, recessionary periods, you have prices going down when our unemployment rate's going up. So at least prices are being suppressed. So... You know, people's paychecks or their unemployment checks are going just as as far as they were before, if not further. And then, but stagflation, yeah, real bad. It's both both times. So to get to, um, you know, to try and solve quote unquote stagflation, there's really not a good way of doing it. You either have to sacrifice more inflation, or kind of sacrifice a little more unemployment and right. a bigger recession. And the Fed decided at that time that uh, it was time to get inflation under control for long run growth, and it's been relatively stable. Um, you know, since the mid '80s, was that the '82 recession? Was that Volcker who did that? Yeah, uh, yeah. So there's the, there's a double dip recession there in '80 uh, '82, right? And yeah. that that almost made Reagan not get reelected in '84, right? But uh, then the economy comes roaring back in '83, right? So the that it helps with that whole kind of '80s and like oh we've solved things again because up until then, uh, you know, the whole we're all Keynesians now type you know, mantra there in the, the 60s, 70s, everything's going great, but people hadn't thought of a negative supply shock where, you know, we are so dependent on foreign oil right. that the once the price of oil, the price of oil is an input to almost everything. And, you know, I when I teach my, when I talk to my students about it, they, you know, they think of oil being like, oh, it heats houses and businesses, sure, but it's not an input to everything. I'm like, right. no, it is. If we're, if, and until we, which, you know, we could talk about this, I think with the next 10 years, it's going to be completely different. But until we get to all of our fleets being uh, running on batteries and electric, right? Anytime you transport goods, you're you're using oil. So if the price of oil goes up four times in two years, you're going to have a supply. Price of everything goes up. Correct. Yeah, that's uh, and it, 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 well, let's let's just reset for a second because I do want to talk to you uh, about you. But whenever I get you on the phone, I'm such an econ nerd. Uh, I, I always just want to talk to you about economics. Uh, I just real fast because you mentioned the fifties and sixties. Uh, could we talk for a second about marginal tax rate and yeah, sure. what it was in the fifties and sixties, and how people misunderstand what that marginal tax rate is? Because I I've been a big believer in in high marginal tax rates, and I. It drives me nuts the left won't use the term redistribute wealth because that sounds like socialism. It's right. it's necessary for American capitalism for people to have money to spend on capital, you know, or or anything to spend on products and redistributing the wealth through a high marginal tax rate that is being used on government projects and uh, you know, giving people good wages is good for everybody. It seems pretty simple to me. What am I missing? What what is, is there? What do the people on the right talk about when they want a lower marginal tax rate? Are they are they correct? Am I missing something, or is it good to have one? Well, the the I think even the people on the far right are going to say that we should have uh, a progressive tax system, a marginal uh, marginal tax rate, which I think it would help the public as a whole if they were better informed on what an actual marginal tax rate is a lot of people think oh we're going to raise the top marginal tax rate to 60 percent 80 percent 90 percent whatever like oh man Bezos is going to get taxed at 90 percent of all of his income and right like that's just not true um it's a thing that i need to many a times tell my students like no 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 like let's calculate this out correctly but anyways the i would say that the vast vast majority even conservative economists that are worried about uh you know, high taxes would still say a marginal tax rate is, is good. So some distribution of wealth is is beneficial. I think you would find uh, very few that would be super, you know, like the 999 type right. uh, people that say everything should be flat. 
Right. That was Steve Forbes, right? Yeah. 999? Um, I thought it was, wasn't it Herman Cain? When oh, he you're ran right. it, it was, it? yes. Herman oh, Cain was 999. Uh, and he, that was also what he said in German to wearing a mask, 999. Yes, exactly. Uh, and, uh, it was Steve Forbes who wanted the flat tax, uh, right. when he ran in, what was that? Was it 96 he ran? Now you're getting, now you're getting to Ben. I was in sixth grade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You were probably, uh, nerding out with, uh, talking about Steve Forbes on Saturday night live when he ran. Exactly. That's, that's exactly what I was doing. So, uh, so what, basically everything you can, you can wrap up most economic arguments um both on the right and on the left if you just go back to you know your basic 101 class of incentives like what are policies going to incentivize people to do and then it just depends on what you think people will be incentivized to do at that point right so why we should lower marginal tax rates is people who are conservative will say that uh, people will then become lazier and they won't uh, strive for that extra dollar of of gained wealth they won't try and make their business more efficient because who cares if they make an extra million dollars if you know nine hundred thousand of that's going to go to the government? So that's right. kind of the, the main thing. I I personally don't believe that, but I can see I can see the argument. I I think that if you know one company doesn't do it, someone else will step in, assuming that there's uh, competition for that for that to happen. Right. Um, so that would be kind of the main argument, and and that's on the on the flip side the the. The argument for the left would say, well, if we don't redistribute this wealth, then there's going to be no incentive for these, um, you know, for people who are on the low end of the socioeconomic status to to actually try and, um, you know, improve themselves. If they don't see a way to the American dream, quote unquote, which I think was really bad branding, but we can talk about that another time. (laughs) Uh, if, If people don't see a way out of that, um, then things get bad. And, and I really think that's happened a lot in, in middle America and the Rust Belt, a lot of people who have who have turned to to Trump and uh, you know Trumponomics, all that all that stuff is is because there was they weren't seeing a way out of declining manufacturing and all this other other stuff. And, right. They they didn't want Paul Ryan to come and shout at them, learn how to code anymore. Right. Right. And so they so then and, and 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 you know and there's still you know there's still a lot of pride in this country about like working hard to. Uh, and, and and people have been fed that forever. Like if you work hard enough, it doesn't matter. Who cares if you're white, black, poor, rich? Right. If you work hard, you'll get paid. And you know it 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 isn't that way. And like the data show that it's not that way. That you know a lot of it ends up being being luck. So how can we make a society that uh, has a has a mix? Now I personally am not a Bernie bro. I'm not a person who thinks that everyone should be getting $60,000 and that everyone should be able to do this. I think that there should be a good mix because I still firmly believe that capitalism is the best way to organize society. Um, it just needs to be some sort of managed capitalism. Economy. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it, it, a couple of things out of that. Uh, one of the things that was striking to me was realizing that American capitalism was based on an idea that there'd always be infinite land to the West. And that I think that we sort of live in a world that that was based on without having infinite land to the West anymore. And just what I mean by that is you could get capital for $0 in 1800 if you were willing to leave Pennsylvania to go to Ohio. And then in the 1820s, if you were willing to leave Ohio to go to Indiana, you could get land for no money. And, you know, those land grabs as they moved west, I think that the idea of the American dream was based on the idea of if you were willing to move west and set stakes down, you could build a life for yourself. And we have that that idea without necessarily having that ability. You know, like if there was an American equivalent of a land grab where you could go and get access to capital if you had the gumption to do it, which I think is, you know, my sort of way of saying I agree with you 100%. I just want people who don't have access to capital right now to get it, which I do think is what Smith was talking about when he wrote Wealth of Nations, was, you know, it wasn't capitalism solves all problems or laissez-faire. I think it was give people access to capital and they'll figure it out. And, and, you know, and physical capital is obviously very scarce and we don't have that unlimited land uh, and the way that we have uh, created in this country infrastructure around, you know, 
uh, highway systems and things like that. Like, sure, there could be a lot of land in the middle of the country, but it's, you know, land in Santa Fe is not going to be the same thing as land in Louisiana or land right. in L.A. So um, and, and then, you know, if you flip it and you say, OK, well, what kind of capital can people go and, and earn? And you think, OK, what about human capital? But with the with the price of education right now and with the barriers that a lot of people face to going to, to getting to higher education, including uh, different tests that they have to take and the complete inequality on uh, admissions essays, et cetera. Yep. You know, there's a lot of barriers to getting that human capital. It's not as simple as, oh, if you want to get into Harvard, you can just get into Harvard. Like, it's not that simple. Right. Um, and which I am very pro-education. I am very yeah. pro-investment in education. I'm very pro that students should be given the same opportunity. And then if they fuck or... Oh, can I say that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're, we're, in, we're a, uh, a dirty podcast. We have to be with the amount I talk about pornography. Oh, okay. <laughs> if the students mess around, then like, yeah. Failing them and having a straight talk with them and be like, look, I'm giving you the same opportunities that we're giving everybody else. Right. Um, and that, again, doesn't mean that I think... Every higher education institution should be free. I don't think that I think that's a very regressive um, policy, to be honest, that uh, but I think there should be more investment in our pre-K and our K through five and our K through 12 education system that puts people on more of a level playing field for when they get to their two or four year degrees uh, that everyone understands what's going on. Because I see that here all the time where students that are coming from higher uh, socioeconomic statuses being super well prepared. They have the high end laptops that can run the code that they need to right. do. Whereas a student who's not has to go fight for a computer in the computer lab. Uh, and, you know, the students who understand that it's okay to go to office hours or they can call up their mom or dad that can say, Hey, I got you this internship. You know, so there's just so many barriers that, you know, until you really think about it, you know, it's not as easy as just, oh, go to go to Penn State and get your degree and you'll make $80,000 a year. Like, yeah, it, you know, it's it's striking when you say that because I know that the right has a hard time saying uh, privilege. They don't like to say privilege. Right. And I'm, I'm trying to remember the uh, economic term for uh, factors that you, you can't quantify. Uh, oh, the, um, the, the, there's in a... Ah, it's uh, there's, there's unknowns, but I, like, I don't know not, what. Not unknowns. Know what exactly. Oh, I read about this in Freakonomics, and it's killing me that I can't remember uh, the term for like uh, unintended uh, consequences. Is that what I'm thinking? Unin- oh, okay, yeah. Where sure. I mean, unintended consequences is, is a thing. Yeah, maybe I'm misusing it because I read Freakonomics ten years ago, and I'm barely remembering it. But just this idea that there are all of these other things that you get when you come from wealth that you don't think about all the stuff you just mentioned and all of those things, you know, create an unfair playing field. Like it, it gives barrier to entry for anybody that doesn't have access to those things. And I, right. I don't think anybody's saying that we should, you know, go to Soviet Russia and make sure everybody has the same car. But I think right. Americans being aware of the fact that there's, you know, even if you just look at it from a human capital point of view, we're losing access to good human stock, to use a Republican yes. phrase, by not letting those people get to the esh- higher echelons with the equipment that they need. Like, it, it, it drives me nuts that, you know, the right understands that you need to pay a lot of money to get the best people in business, but refuse to see that when we're talking about schools or, uh, you know, anything that involves the public and poor people. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and you know what, I'll, you know, we're, we're railing a little bit on the right, but I also think, you know, the left doesn't realize the privilege that a lot of people on the left do end up having when you look at this on a global scale. So when I teach my when I teach to my students and I talk about like, you know, think about where you stand in the in the United States ecosystem of of wealth and whatnot. But then if you expand that to the entire world, like, you know, there are people who are not even coming close to getting the opportunities that you're having, even if you see the person sitting next to you have a better laptop or you see the person, you know, in the doing like you have a lot of opportunities, too. So there is still responsibility on, um, you know, on the students. And, And I try and work my butt off as an instructor to like let students understand all the opportunities that they do have and make that a level playing field and give, you know, a, a little bit of leniency if students come to me and they say, Hey, my mom got COVID and I can't do the work this week, you know, and, right. and try and, and try and 
make an environment as inclusive as possible because at the end of the day like i want to see humankind i want to see the country succeed and i know the more people that i put out in the world that'll have higher human capital is going to is going to do that and you know i don't get paid enough to do all that stuff so i i think educators should get paid more and that would maybe help too well no 100 it's ridiculous because again if you, these the same people that would pay eight million dollars to bring in a consulting firm to figure out like the best way to brand their new product, are are the same people that go well school teachers should be capped at sixty thousand because you know they they get the summers off and you're like no pay you you understand the more money you pay the better you bring in so pay educators more and you get a higher class of educator like I, I think that how is that not easy to understand. Uh, yeah. It, it boggles boggles my mind. It, it, there's it, it's be, it's because they don't see the direct they don't see the direct influence of their bottom line right away. Right. It's very difficult to again like so and and a lot of times you'll you'll see these conservative economists and they're you know they are like well we got to do supply side econ we really got to focus on supply side stuff but there's not they're not investing in huge infrastructure right. we've had historically low interest the united states can borrow money at negative rates like why we aren't completely redoing sewer systems and do redoing highway systems building high-speed trains like it that like that was the one thing in the 2016 election that yes. i was like trump what? Bernie, everyone's on the same page. Like, let's spend on supply side econ. Let's it's, get, it helps get some really good stuff. Everybody, okay. you get immediate benefit from the people who are being paid to build the thing, and you get long term benefit. I mean, the entire economics of America is built around the uh, interstate highway system that was yes. built in the fifties. Uh, it was a huge project. It was a Republican project. It was a military project first. Just like the internet, it was like, we need to build this thing out for the military. But, oh, wait, we can use it for other stuff, too. It, it makes no sense not to pursue it. Uh, it makes it, it makes no sense. And the... And as we as we move into more, you know, I've been I've been really getting into like electric vehicles and yes. uh, how the price of batteries is just plummeting. So like it's going to become cheaper within the next five years for these big companies to, you know, Amazon's not going to be buying like, UPS and all these places. They're not going to be buying buying diesel powered vans no. anymore in five years. Like it's going to be a completely electric fleet. And so we need to right now start building infrastructure for charging stations, uh, you know, figuring out what we want to do with local streets if we don't even need cars. And then within five, 10 years after that, it's going to be all autonomous. I'm going right. to be on my phone. I'm going to call an Uber. It's going to cost me $5 because they don't need to pay a driver. They just send me a car and they bring me to my, you know, to my work. There, so. There's so much. The thing I love about electric vehicles is that it's, uh, it, you know, input agnostic when it comes to the energy. So it gives us the opportunity to like the main problem with switching from, uh, you know, like I remember when Arnold Schwarzenegger was uh, uh, governor of California, he did this whole initiative to switch to hydrogen gas for the cars. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he was like, well, we need to build out the infrastructure for for hydrogen powered cars. You know, we need to have like gas stations for hydrogen gas. And I remember thinking, well, that's super inefficient if we come up with something better down the line. And once you get to a fully electric fleet, what I love about that is if we invent fusion, we're good. If we need, right. uh, you know, solar, we're good. We can burn coal if we need to. Whatever the energy is, it doesn't matter because once it's electricity, we can use it. And I, I wish that people would just, you know, the, the oil producers would understand that that's the main benefit of it. Besides all the, the other stuff, it gives us a lot of flexibility in how we power stuff going forward. Yeah. And, and the, you know, the idea of, and this is another thing, like, and I tell students when I say conservative econ, I don't mean, you know, the current state of the GOP and the current quote unquote political conservatives, because a, a true conservative economist would say, if the market's pointing towards electric vehicles and to get get away from fossil fuels, then that's a hundred percent what we should be doing. Right. And all these people who lose their jobs in the coal mines or, or in fracking or any of these other stuff, like it's their responsibility to then retrain and get new jobs. Like that's what, you know, that's what the libertarian and the, 
and the far right econ people would say. So right. I, I need to a lot of times during my classes be like, look, when I say conservative economics, I'm not talking about what you're seeing right now right. because there's absolutely no way any of my conservative econ friends would be pro a huge trade war, right? There's right. no way they would be pro all of this propping up of of farming and propping up of uh, of the other things. So there's there's a big difference when it when it comes to that. But you know, and 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 so that's uh, that's where I kind of also differ from the Bernie Bros and the super far far left of like, you know, I I don't I, I want there to be as free and open trade as possible. I, Should we I, pay I, attention to the stealing of of uh, patents and like that, oh, of course we should do that as well. But like, trade's good. I I want to take a moment here to to bash the far left because I feel like we've been bashing <laughs> the far right for for long. And I know that if this happens to get into the hands of a Bernie bro, we're going to be called you know uh, centrist scum or whatever they use for oh, yeah. the the term for. Oh, I'm a neoliberal, I guess. Um, yes, that one. Yeah, that's the one that they use. Uh, but you know, have you read Steven Pinker at all? Are you a Pinker fan? He, um, no, my my reading should be more. He he's um, got a book. Uh, he's not a he's a psycholinguist, but you know he he his purview is is much greater than that. And his his latest book was The Enlightenment, and it spoke to something you said earlier, where he was talking about how you know we live in better times than we imagine that we do. And while you might have a smaller slice of the pie because of economic inequality, and that's terrible, if the pie is far greater than it used to be, you still have more than your ancestors did. And, you know, the idea being that, like, you know, if you can afford a phone, you don't need books or magazines or movies. The phone provides all of that for you. And, you know, you live in a world where, yes, you don't have as much as a, a, a millionaire does. But you have access to more material than than your ancestors ever did, and I I'm a big Pinker fan, and you know that as someone who's sort of soaked in the politics of the left, it it is a good eye opener to to be reminded every once in a while. Oh yeah, things are actually pretty good. So you know, as what you said earlier, compared to other countries or compared to the past, we're still doing pretty good, even as you know we try to I- increase equality in this country. And a buddy of mine who's a Bernie bro, uh, Mike Casey, and he probably wouldn't like the idea of me saying Bernie bro, but he's been on the podcast before talking about Bernie. Uh, he he asked me to listen to this podcast, Chapo Trapo podcast. Have you heard of these people? I have. I have not. Uh, they're they're dirtbag leftists, and that's okay. their self proclaimed title. I I know very little about their philosophy. I know that they put roses next to their name on Twitter. They call themselves the dirtbag left. There's a lot of uh, uh, criticism from the left, you know, the neoliberal left about these guys and vice versa. But I was listening to them bash Steven Pinker for being stupid on their podcast the one time I listened. Uh, and I had just read Enlightenment. And I was like, well, wait a second. This this feels like a kind of strict adherence to uh, to dogma as much as I hear from the right. So, you know, F these guys, I'm, I'm, I'm out. Uh, my question to you is as an economics professor at a at a college you probably run into bernie bros far more often than i do in my day-to-day and i i want to know a little bit about how you how you talk to them and what you're seeing from the extreme left on college campuses when it comes to economics well i would i would say that I don't run into as many in class as I might. I will. I will say that the very, very vast majority of students that I that I run into uh, are open minded to learn the to learn the theory and to learn the basics of what I'm teaching in an intro and even an intermediate right. level class. And and we'll we'll dive into into some things and people will ask the questions about things and I'll always try and give you know, a, a kind of middle of the road, uh, answer. And I will, I'm, I'm very aware that, you know, teaching of intro economics is very assumption based and those assumptions may not hold and that we need to, you know, we need to recognize that. And like the main assumption of intro is that there's going to be pure competition and we just don't have right. that. Or, or the idea of rational that. actors, which Correct. we rational don't have actors. at all. 
we don't do. So I talked to that and like, there'll be people like, well, shouldn't we just like give everybody, you know, $5,000 a month? And I'll be like, okay, well, here are the pros. Here are the cons of that. Uh, I have been lucky that I haven't had anybody on either the right or the left, like come into my class and be completely, you know, bashing of what's going on. I've had people leave reviews that are like he's a he's a flaming liberal i'm like dude you don't know any flaming liberals if you think i'm a flaming liberal right you you need to if i'm as far left as you have encountered you have a long ways to go well i'm guessing Uh, central pa you might be the che guevara of central pa with some of these dangerous ideas i might be and so it's actually it's interesting because as a younger economist uh you know, a lot of the older economists, even in like my department, you know, they've been teaching this stuff for a very long time. And so they're much more of like, here are the assumptions and like, here's the econ theory and like, give me my paycheck. Like, let's go. Right. Um, which I think it's very important for students to understand that. But I'm in a little, you know, as a younger, in a younger generation, like we've, we've been starting to really dig more into those assumptions and to, and to let students understand that, you know, this, if you take econ 101, you don't know a lot about economics. Like, you know, just enough to like, hopefully spur your interest to learn more. (laughs) You you know, just enough to mess up when you vote the next time (laughs) you Dunning Kruger your way to the top. Right. I just want, I just want students. I really just want students to, to realize that with every class, like if you take an intro to anything, like you take an intro to biology, like you're not going to go and do surgery tomorrow. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. Like, so if you learn intro to econ, they're like, Hey, a minimum wage is going to cause unemployment. And you're like, well, I guess I'm never going to vote for minimum wage. You're like, well, there's a lot of assumptions with that. There's a big assumption. This is a static economy. Guess what? The world doesn't start and end today. Right. Ask. Like there's a lot of things that go on. Here's the research that shows that we basically don't know what's going to happen when, when we, when it goes, like, if it's a small increase, nothing really happens. If it's a big increase, we're not sure. Like here's you decide, but they, students want to just know, like, you ask me what happens when this happens. I want, I want a black or white answer. Right. And that, one of the things I remember you always telling me about economics is that uh, nobody knows. <laughs> it's, it's, we don't know what we're doing. We're going to try our best to answer it. But yeah, it's an inexact science. And I got to tell you, it is my, it's my favorite thing to discuss. And this podcast could easily be five and a half hours when I have somebody on who knows something about this that I'd love to ask them. But I do want to, uh, you know, not keep you here all day. I have a couple of quick questions I want to ask. Uh, where do you stand on UBI? You, you mentioned that universal basic income. Uh, I'm not part of the Yang gang, but I do see uh, automation getting us to a point where we might have uh, problem uh, problems filling jobs for everybody. And UBI seems like, you know, a pretty easy way to make sure that we don't fall into a, uh, uh, you know, dystopia once that all happens. But, uh, I, I think it's a complicated subject. What are your feelings on UBI? Uh, I actually think UBI is a much more, uh, central view than what it's being presented as right now, because, you know, in, in a pure view of some sort of universal basic income, you would get rid of all other safety nets. Oh, okay. Um, That's interesting. So, so like in, in, if you were to think of like, let's just give everybody whatever we would consider a living wage, which I hate the idea of a living wage, because what does that mean? I hate the idea. Um, But you know, obviously better than minimum wage, blah, blah, blah. Let's say $2,000 a month, I think is what, 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 what was that was what yang was saying when he was running i think that's what he's saying so let's say we give everybody two thousand dollars a month and and then we we get rid of snap so we get rid of any sort of any sort of food food stance we uh we get rid of social security we get rid of um you know any sort of other housing benefits or hud or all that stuff so uh it would still be a very very expensive program but like that would be a way that you would simplify government so you would right. satisfy uh, you'd satisfy the people that want very little little government and you could also say like we're providing resources to people that's um, a very and, interesting and it, answer i had right. you know what it's weird i never even thought about the the other services being cut when you do ubi that's very interesting right and and that's you know I, we were talking about friedman a little bit earlier i don't know if it was before i we think it was i think it was before the podcast but yeah uh, I, and, i'm not a fan of friedman right well, i mean friedman had Friedman had talked about doing, you know, a negative income tax, which is just a UBI, like right. where, you know, you, your, your income tax would be a negative $2,000 up to 40,000. So you'd get $2,000 if you made anything less than that. So oh, that's you know, there's, yeah. there's, um, there are lots of ways that you could play with it. And the, the biggest proponents of universal basic income 
are like if you think of just like the simplicity of it right every single person gets this and then you cut out a ton of other programs and so how much would it be it would still be very expensive and you still have to figure out how to pay for it which you know we could we could talk about marginal tax rates again we could about, we could <laughs> i could talk about marginal tax rates all day long james tierney <laughs> we, could, we could we could we could do all that stuff but um but yeah so that would be i i would like to see more research done in the area of what would be the true cost if we were to go all in if we right. were to say you know what we don't need all these other programs um we don't need all this quote-unquote government waste uh because you know there is a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of times we try and help individuals through government and through, through politics and through policies and it just ends up hurting someone else or even actually hurting the people we're trying to help is there a way to get the government out of the way and just provide the resources and interesting see more research on it interesting all right two more questions and then i'll let you go uh first as someone who is a uh, graduate of UC Irvine, uh, where Peter Navarro uh, worked, um, wh- why do you focus so much on mercantilism? And uh, what are the 17th century and 18th century philosophies being taught at your school? Um, well, so just so everyone is clear, <laughs> uh, I did get my graduate degree from UC Irvine Economics Department. And uh-huh. Peter Navarro is attached to the business school, completely different, the Mirage Business School. Um, just so, just so everybody knows, because I feel like <laughs> you and I are doing an in-joke here. Peter Navarro is the economic advisor to the president, uh, current president. You might you might be listening to this after January 20th, uh, the president that we currently want to forget about. Uh, yeah. And he is uh, – if there is 10,000 ec- economists in the world, James, would you say he's one of six that believes trade wars are still a viable uh, option for nations to have with one another? Yeah, I'd say give or take five. uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Very, um, yeah, it it was frustrating at the time that when it was being floated around that Peter Navarro would get into the White House and get the, you know, the right ear of of Trump. Uh, And people were like, oh, Irvine, Irvine. So it's just, I I tell my students this all the time. Like, look, there are very few things that economists on the right and the left uh, agree pretty much (laughs) like unanimously on right and one of those things is trade uh so you know one of those things are trade and one of those things that people respond to incentives and like come on if you if you make it hard it it, it's interesting because i i grew up in uh when nafta you know i was in high school when nafta was being floated around and you know i remember perot doing the whole that sucking sound you hear is all the jobs being sucked out of america and I, you know, again, neoliberal here, I remember thinking, well, how could it be bad to open up trade? Because it feels like that's the thing that, fl- to to quote a, a guy that uh, is probably the worst columnist in the country, um, flatten the earth, right? Uh, who was that? I'm, try- I'm forgetting his name because uh, Friedman's in my head. Who wrote that? Uh, flatten the earth. Ah. Hold I don't on. know. Would it, be, it wouldn't be Krugman, would it? No, I like Krugman, actually. <laughs> I, I figured. I thought you would like Krugman. Yeah. I, Krugman, he's a Nobel Prize winner, isn't he? Correct, he is. Uh, let me... I'm going to... Because this will kill me if I don't remember this. Um, flatten the... No, I, I will <laughs> actually die. Okay. Earth. I'm glad I got to talk to you again before that happened. Yeah. Uh, the Earth is Flat is the name of the book. The Earth is... The... Hold on, I'm all, I'm recording and I'm writing at the same time. That, that um, sounds like a lot of work that you're doing. Yeah. Well, now I'm getting a whole bunch of flat Earth society. That's not what I wanted. Maybe it's the world is flat. Uh, hold on, I'm almost there, everyone. Hold on. This is this is the content these people are paying for. That's right. They wanted economic talk and an old guy um, looking up the Earth is flat. Thomas Friedman. Okay. All right. That's that's what I was writing. Okay. That you know what? That was a lot of work for a whole lot of nothing. Let me <laughs> let me ask my final question, James, which is uh I ask anybody that knows anything about economics on, it's my foolproof plan to save America through the perfect tax system. Okay. Are you ready for this? Sure, I'm ready. I, I call it the keep what you kill uh system. Here's what happens. Okay. Zero tax in life, one hundred percent estate tax. That is um, that is my uh, idea for how to fix everything. 
Okay. So, uh, well, we talked about unintended consequences. So what's the, what are the unintended consequences of that? Does that mean like, am I allowed to gift money at all? Can I buy things for other people? So yeah, um, that's where it becomes a little problematic. And, uh, <laughs> so, the, so the first, so the first, so your big solving of the world becomes problematic after one question. One question. That's, 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 that's the main <laughs> issue. Uh, so yeah, no, I, you'd have to have rules for that. And I do like the, you know, like what can you gift someone college? I do think it should, you know, uh, th- there should be some level of being able to give your kids something. But I, I sort of thought of the the Bill Gates idea of how he was going to give each of his kid a million dollars and then everything else is going to be given to charity. I was thinking that if we want a pure meritocracy, we're never going to get it. But if the government, you know, it's like, uh, did you ever read Dune, James? No. The Fremen get to keep their water, but when they die, their water goes back to the uh, the rest of the people in the, the little Fremen cave. That's what okay. we do. Your water goes back to the, the cave, and, uh, and, and then nobody uh, gets to have uh, dynasties. That Walton can't give his kids Walmart. Jeff Bezos can't give his kids Amazon. That that gets chopped up, given to the government, and then they can resell it, uh, and uh, that's where they make all their money. So what happened? So, um, you know, obviously we could, like you said, we can make this five and a half hours. Uh, What happens if someone has a business idea that they're not sure if it's going to really be profitable in their lifetime, but they want to do like some sort of really awesome long-term thing and they know that anything they make. So there's like not an incentive. You can, you can make a corporate corporations can live. It's just your, you can't have a family business. Okay. It's the idea of generational wealth goes away. And, uh, you know, I, for the longest time, you know, when, when talking about the, the, the lower class, we've, we've talked about how to give them access to generational wealth. My thinking is just take away generational wealth from, uh, from those who have it and give everybody at, as close to the same starting place as we can that, you know, you have full incentive to make whatever you want in life. But your kids are on their own as well. You know, give them a good start and let them go out into the world. But, you know, you can't give them your house and your your money and your business. They have to do all that on their own. I mean, I think it's interesting. I think it would cause an extreme revolution. But that would be the yeah. best. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's, yeah. it's a not real system. It's just a thought experiment that I've had for a long time. Uh, about trying to destroy this idea. I think it was right around the time that my dad died and didn't leave me anything that I started thinking right. about that, this. That makes sense. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> well, maybe my dad was less about giving my stepmother money than he was about uh, proving to me that I could do it on my own. And maybe that's exactly. what everybody should have. Exactly. And you better you know, let any of your uh, current or future offspring uh, know that that's what you're going to do as well. Oh, they can see the way I spend my money. They They know nothing's <laughs> coming their way. Da- Daddy uh, does not need that many box sets of DVDs, but he buys them anyway. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, James. Why do you have DVDs? DVDs are so old. Now, you know what? I was I, I just watched uh, The Office where Michael was spending all of his money on DVD box sets. Uh, uh-huh. So that's why it was fresh in my head. It is a dumb joke that I just made because I have not bought physical media in 10 years. Uh, everything I have is digital. I, I don't have any, uh, all of my movies and everything else. I basically rent from Netflix my whole life. Uh, yeah, as, as I look, as I look down at my stack of economist uh, magazines that I still get every week. <laughs> well, do you get, do you subscribe to that or do you, uh, do you yeah, get, I mean, I subscribe to the thing is, is like, I subscribe to the economist that it's the same price to get digital and print. Oh, I'm uh, the same way with before, the wired. Yeah. With wired. Yeah, and, and so, so because I mean, it, before the pandemic, I have an office on campus and I would just always bring them to the office and there'd be a stack of them and some students would come in and I'd be like, oh, if you want to take any of these, like, go ahead and read about stuff. And it was good. Now they just sit in my office. I don't open them because everything I read is online. I was just uh, following very closely. We're recording this today after the Georgia runoffs. And I believe David Wasserman, who is the uh, pollster for The Economist, was the first guy to call the uh, election. Yeah, he was the one I believe that said. I've seen enough. I'm going to bed. Uh, yeah, and exactly I. Exactly what I did. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a beautiful moment, which I know our Republican listeners will be angry about. You got to understand, I am the filthy liberal on the, uh, right. on the podcast. Bill is the conservative, and Jessica is the one that keeps us from fighting. Although we are good friends and started a business together, uh, which yeah. people don't seem to understand that Bill and I uh, are both capitalists. We have just different ideas of how to get there. That's the only right. difference. And- and I, I think we would be a much better off society if people start to understand that 
we have a lot more in common than we do different. And, you know, if someone doesn't completely agree with you, like, we can talk about it, people. Yeah, I, that's what I'm really looking forward to. It, you know, and I, Bill will get mad at me about this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm looking forward to having a Republican Party that I can politely disagree with, right. uh, it, rather than a Republican Party that I'm constantly worried about is going to end the world. Like that's that's. It, I want to go back to you know George Will and H.W. Uh, Bush. And, you know, I you're talking to a guy who read George Will in the back of Newsweek from the age of 10 on. And, uh, you know, I look, I disagreed with him, but I, I liked him. You know, it's I, right. it's okay to have Republican, like I look at, what was it, Buckley and, uh, and uh, Gore Vidal uh, going at each other on national TV, but it was friendly and I'm okay with that. Uh, you're, wanna, not, you're not gonna, you're not gonna have overall growth unless you have, unless you have competing views and then incentive to make your view better and and incentive to make your arguments better. Um, and so I think that needs to be some healthy discourse we need to see. You know what? That's an interesting, uh, place to stop. I, I, I love the idea that, uh, to apply economic incentives to the echo chamber that social media has become. If, uh, if you don't have any incentive to have a better argument because everybody agrees with you, then your argument stays shit. And uh, we all need to remember that. Yeah, I agree. James, this has been my favorite episode of the podcast. No offense to the other 193 people that we've interviewed, but oh my God, I could talk. I could talk economics with you for 10 hours. Can we do this again relatively soon? Yes, you have my number, so feel free to. I mean, if you need me to get you into my class, I might have a seat or two. You could, you could just <laughs> join, on, join, join on Zoom all semester because that's how I'm teaching this semester. Well, if you want me to come in to give a guest speech about my idea of uh, the Keep What You Kill program, I'm available. Yeah, sure. I'll <laughs> check my calendar and see when I'm open. Uh, thank you so much, man. Uh, James Tierney, okay. do you have anything to promote? Do you have a book you're selling? What What can I do to help you? I'm not I'm not selling in any book. Uh, people can find me on Twitter as I post things about comedy and econ and entrepreneurship. And it's what? James underscore Tierney. James underscore Tierney. That's T-I-E-R-N-E-Y. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Follow James. This guy knows what he's talking about. He is one of my favorite people to talk to. And he did comedy for me when he was still in college. He would be uh, my opening act. And he was hilarious. That's so, true. Go- no, that's true. Go check out James. James, thank you for being on the podcast. And uh, let me kick it back to Bill, Jessica, and future Jay. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.